Jordan, um, very good to see you and thank you for coming and talking to me. I understand it's somewhat of a special day for you. And so I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Um, I felt like our, our last conversation had a certain, well, I'd say I felt had a certain beauty to it. And uh, so when you reached out this time, I thought, yeah, let's just continue that thread. Yeah, I had the same feeling as well. And uh, I did, I, you know, I, I did uh, reach out to you because you've been on a couple of other podcasts uh, recently talking about your, your conversion to Christianity, which uh, in a way I'm sort of embarrassed about kind of jumping on the bandwagon and talking about this because it seems to be a big deal to people somehow um i've kind of considered myself a religious person for a long time not within the christian tradition uh, at least i consider myself to be connected in, in that sense but so many people aren't so uh, uh and so many people who we talk to just have no interest or you know even a animosity towards religion so uh -oh. i guess i guess i'm wondering about that i'm wondering about your journey towards becoming religious you've covered that in you know in detail that your story on the podcast with uh with others so maybe in this conversation we can sort of go deep into like you know your feelings towards christianity how that happened what was your sort of like road to damascus so to speak well it wasn't quite that intense um <laughs> Well, at least not all at once. Maybe if you, if you were to concentrate the entire experience of, let's say, 30 years into 15 minutes, maybe it was that intense. It's interesting to think about it that way. Um, sure. So maybe as some background, uh, Daniel Thorsten grabbed me and said, hey, would you be willing to share this publicly? And so that was the first podcast I covered kind of a part of the story. And then Jim Rutt, who I had scheduled to have a conversation with about Sidium years, months ago, said, hmm, I want to have this conversation about Christianity as well. Uh, so those two podcasts are out. And then uh, subsequent to that, but not yet public, I think, um, the folks from Doomer Optimism had a conversation with me, I think, three days ago. And then Ken Lowry and I had a beautiful conversation yesterday. I thought, you know, if you, if you happen to be interested in this at all, I think you really like that one. That's my the favorite conversation I've had so far. And mm -hmm. so... Um, you know, my, my rule for two decades has been, uh, I never I never reach out, I never seek to be on a show. I never invite anybody, to, you know, chatting with me. Um, but if somebody invites me, and it, I have two feelings, one feeling is that they're coming in good faith um, and that our conversation will be of, of kind of a higher service. This has been the case for 20 years. Um, well, I guess the third rule is that I have time, energy, and emotional resilience to engage in the conversation. Then I say yes. So mm -hmm. There's been a, as you say, there's there's something like uh, maybe a potential energy or uh, a building up of water behind a dam where my coming out in a certain way has tapped into something that's already, that's out there. And mm -hmm. so there's a, there's a meaningful amount of interest and it comes from a variety of different locations. And so this is why I wasn't too concerned about saying a lot of yeses because you talk to a different group of people than Ken talks to, for example. Mm. There's some of, it's not really, I don't think that much overlap. And more importantly, 
perspective is different. And so this is kind of like the, the hyper conversation processing of something. Like if I think about it as a, as a multiplicity uh, event as opposed to sort of me, then it's more interesting. So that's the way I'm coming at it, uh, at least in, in this context. Um, so let's see. So bring, bring me back in. What's the place that you'd like to focus on? The road to Damascus. Yeah. I mean, your road has been very long. And I was contemplating on the difference between perhaps, you know, myself and you, you know, as we tend to do in styles of being. And you, you're a very, you've, you're a very insightful, intelligent person who's, you know, worked in tech and you, you strike me as, you know, just... Uh, has been have, I've appreciated your thinking for a long time uh, you know also I, I sense feeling behind that as well but I sense that you're a thinking person and if I compare yourself to me I I, I think that I I became sort of um religious in my 20s um from from feeling and not having thought it through <laughs> which is very different I just sort of I just sort of jumped into it um and and i feel like you've thought it through which I have, is kind I have, of interesting I have, I have thought it through i think that's very fair so to kind of put the to begin to put the the eh, i don't know so quote some kind of road some milestones in place um and I, I so i never found myself in the agnostic not the agnostic the atheist eddy from the point of view of thinking it through so for, from my perspective, and I'm very happy to kind of like defend this perspective, even the, I think the 10, 11 or 12 year old me, it was quite clear that the, the, the frame of atheism is incoherent. It's not, it's not a rational frame. Uh, it's ultimately an emotional frame that, that uses uh, rational arguments to defend its emotional position. So it actually fits more deeply in the, in the feeling domain than anything else, but the feelings are hurt feelings. <laughs> um, so I sat in a um, an agnostic location for a very long time, in an agnostic location with the with the the, uh, the dial set very high on um, hocus pocus, say for example, hmm. um, or made up or on the the kind of both the logical rigor and the 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 metaphysical, like the philosophical uh, robustness. Um, of things coming in and so of course and then of course suffering from the the bias of our culture and the, my particular thrownness into our culture which is a a bias that up until recently i didn't fully grasp which is an anti-christian bias hmm. and so our, our culture has an anti-christian bias and and certainly the culture that i dropped into had an anti-christian bias and by the way even Christians often have that anti-Christian bias, which we can even delve into a little bit. Um, so this ended up with my adopting something like a, uh, you know, a Neil deGrasse Tyson or Stephen Hawking's um, Feynman mid-century Apollo program, take a man to the moon, food and pill form, uh, you know, techno-optimistic, and then later more of a cypherpunk hacker ethos sensibility. And so... Mm -hmm. Somewhere in the in the naturalistic, not quite materialistic, because obviously, again, materialism is also uh, incoherent. Um, but holding in something in the naturalistic frame and, and working mostly in that area, and of course, my my life 
focus for the most part was in the crossovers between the, the technical realm, the entrepreneurial realm, and the science philosophical realm. So I kind of lived all three of those. I think in a in some conversation I mentioned uh, uh, another milestone. So now we're much further down the lines from being 12. Now we're in my maybe 30, 31, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, sitting in the in the waiting room at the Googleplex, uh, waiting to go have a conversation with Sergey Brin because Google is making an offer to buy my company. And and I have a copy of uh, Jules uh Difference in Repetition that I'm reading. And so that's that's actually, I think, a very nice, like that's that's a location. Um, and Deloitte, in some sense, I was actually just listening to James Cortati's beautiful video. It's crazy. He said like six people in the world may be interested in this video uh, where he's comparing the, the abstract machine of Deloitte with the symbolic uh, Pento Cratro coming from... Uh, Jonathan Pajot, and it's good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Go back and watch it maybe two more times, maybe even meet him in person. Um, but I think Deloitte is a good model of where I was. You know, highly abstract, um, opening up new ways of thinking about this, you know, the notion of the virtual, for example, which is not the actual or the material, but nonetheless, at the end of the day, a natural, realist, uh, philosophical frame. Um and to the degree to which it cashes out in changes in physical reality, uh, which is a stronger rule than just empirical science, but empirical science is a, a repeatable experiment, which is a measurable change in physical reality. But for example, uh, building transistors is a, is a more meaningful demonstration of, of something than just you can do something in the lab. Um, That's kind of my epistemology, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest. Epistemology was one of, if you can build levers that move rocks, then great. Whatever whatever's behind that is probably pretty uh, more real than others. And hmm, and that like you know that arc brings me in all all the way through, all the way through into the uh, kind of the earliest Game B era. So we're talking 2010, 2012, somewhere in there. And during that time frame, I went through the the portal of. Um, I guess transparentumatic mind is maybe the key element there. Can I throw another word in there? I mean, that I was thinking about in relation to you and and your your you know your writings on the blue church, etc. I was saying Jordan's always Jordan was a very apocalyptic writer, and and like in the sense of apocalypse, in in the Christian sense, which is different than you know. Uh, the, the the meaning crisis in the sense that everybody is a zombie because the apocalypse is 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 about uh redemption in some kind of a way or so i felt like i felt like yeah. your early writings while even not being explicitly christian and while almost every everybody is is very christian without even knowing it in our culture you know a protestant right. that, that there there was an intense apocalypticism to your writing um yeah yeah in the sense of like to reveal Right to root, mm-hmm. uh, relative, yes. the turning, a shifting. Um, yeah, quite. You know, I I found myself in a in a in a using the the previous sort of epistemology and methodology, um, perceiving through the lens of complex system science and uh, uh, cultural evolutionary theory, which is an extension of complex bio, uh, 
take biological evolutionary theory, expand it into a more abstract form using kind of complexity architectures, and then you can apply it across fields like culture um, to a, oh, hey, this thing that we're part of is in, in a, a moment of profound transformation. And one of the consequences of that is that we are going to be forced into a, a conscious experience of things that have been laying under the surface for a very long time. And this will be both at the axiology level, like axioms that we've just been unconsciously assuming, and at the uh, the practical level. For example, that the governments don't actually serve the interest of the governed in a, in a way that's very difficult to, to deny. Like, so delusions will be uh, dis-diluted, dis uh, and us under unconscious assumptions will be raised to the surface, simply because that's the natural consequence of, of the moment that we happen to be in. Um, and then, and then the next piece was, okay, the moment we happen to be in presages, not just a profound change, but a profound transformation, our responsibility that we actually have to move into this, this creative moment. Um, and that from a, I would say anthropological and cognitive distributed cognition perspective, this movement into this creative moment requires a raising of consciousness. And I don't mean this necessarily. Mm in the kind of the woo sense i mean this in a very practical sense of what is the what is the word that we use to describe the, the our mental capacity to perceive and be in relationship with some set of phenomena in the world some sort of our level of consciousness and when we raise our level of consciousness we expand the, the, the dimensionality and the scope of that and if, if the problem we're dealing with is beyond a certain scope we have to raise our consciousness to to perceive it it's a it's a richer word than say for example increasing our memory bandwidth or increasing our cpu speed which is sort of narrow band in a very particular form of intelligence but if you increase the richness of what you mean by intelligence now you're speaking about consciousness as it seems user. like it has the element of caring like consciousness caring rather than just intelligence there's a caring in consciousness that, that there's an c-a-r or c-a-r-r-y uh care, caring like you know in the heideggerian sense you know to care you know i guess yeah, yeah, no, yeah in, in, uh, to even say like to be in relationship with which mm -hmm. is the person to a quality of relationship known as caring um so that then moved me into a phase of then from an, from a thinking it through perspective it is you know from my point of view demonstrably necessary to figure out what it means to go about this consciousness thing and this raising of consciousness thing. Mm -hmm. um, and also being aware of the fact that it requires a, you know, and, and this word is now common currency, but at the time it certainly wasn't, at least within my world, a liminal moment, mm -hmm. uh, moving to a place where the you have to disconnect yourself from the orienting basis that biases your, your understanding, because that may actually be the thing that needed to, to be to, to shift. And so you have to have something, something akin to zero in the uh, with the meditation, we call the U, uh, who that was, Otto Schirmer, maybe? And you go to the bottom of the U, and from a liminal perspective, it's like a ball going to the top of its arc and hitting zero um, velocity, zero momentum vectors until it's ready to start falling back down again. Um, and that entered into the journey, which we could broadly call spirituality. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Opening up new, new uh, areas of possibility, exploring those areas of possibility directly, having um embodied experiences that start to start to accumulate hmm, okay this is this appears to be part of reality 
and it's not doesn't fit within previous frames okay what does it look like to go down that path um and so that's kind of 2013 to 2023 2022 and then as we start getting into 2022 go ahead so that's the movement let's say from mechanical solutions or intellectual solutions you know, uh, to spiritual solutions, whatever that means. Um, you know, Gurdjieff yeah. talked about mechanical man, right? And 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 that one becomes religious at the point where or spiritual or whatever when one perceives something beyond the mechanical, which you know is is perennially called divine or you know, and different things in different uh, traditions. Yeah, I mean, initially you could just say, as you say, something beyond. Yeah. Transcendence, perhaps, or yeah, transcendence is nice. Yeah, something in the in the category of transcendence. The category of transcendence is a is a category. It's a piece. It's reality. And okay, that's that's you, know, you go there. Once you get there, now you're on a on a journey. And so for me, that involved um, you know reading a lot of authors, finding out who Gurdjieff was, um, participating in uh, was it the Bohm Krishnamurti dialogues, talking with people from the. Uh, the Anthroposophia and the Theosophia, and of course, right, right. Um, more of the traditional religions, most notably not Christian, by the way, but um, you know, Kabbalahs and uh, Hindus and various Buddhist flavors and things like that. And, and in many cases, practicing some of those techniques and getting involved in those practices, um, and plenty of medicine journeys to use the um, uh, contemporary <laughs> maxi un. Uh, uncriminal or unviolating uh, language, um, all of which is in that same box. Like, okay, mm -hmm. WT, here's different people who have perspectives on it. They claim to have certain insight and understanding. Let's go into that, explore it, see if we can metabolize it. But always actually, this so that's everything but Christianity. Sorry to interrupt, isn't it? It's like, you know, ultimately, yeah, yeah. ultimately, um, yeah, shamanic practices, indigenous practices, but. As you say, from a dispositional perspective, still this this role of thinking it through, and so you know how we actually, my wife and I, Vanessa and I, had conversations about how at this point do you know when you're not actually just insane? At what point do you know that you've not lost mm -hmm. your mind? What's the what's the thing that you can use to tether yourself that is sort of stronger than? You know, empirical science has a particular way of tethering itself to reality to avoid um, mysticism or to avoid uh, superstition. Right. Well, how do you actually have confidence that your explanations are real explanations? And you know, we essentially built a, a larger kind of framework of, all right, how do we enter into these liminal moments where underlying hypotheses and metaphysics about the nature of reality are now going to be rendered open without losing our minds entirely? Like, what does that mm -hmm. look like? So, uh, you know, maintaining, I guess, a dispositional orientation towards rigor was definitely part of that journey. And, you know, you may recall there was the, the entering into the religious phase, um, roughly 2022, 2021. And this for me began actually when I was looking at, oddly enough, economics. Uh, so I was looking at economics and I noticed that you can't do economics properly. We actually recognize that the false dichotomy of state and market is a false dichotomy. And if there's a third term, known as the commons that we have to explore. And then the inquiry was, okay, what is the commons? And then, and then as it turns out, the exploration was, oh, the concept of the commons is actually better understood as the concept of the sacred. 
but the sacred is the deep basis upon which the category of the commons mm. is, is attached. Um, that changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, that changes everything. Yeah, absolutely. And so then the question is, what does an orderly approach to the sacred look like? Like, how do we, what does governance in the category of the sacred look like? All right, well, now we're starting to get in the domain of religion. We're getting in the domain of what are the liturgies whereby we ravel ourselves together from a disparate multiplicity in the context of the sacred into communion, for example. Like, that's a very religious sensibility, but not very, that is a precisely religious sensibility. Um, and yet maintaining and holding this unconscious or pseudo-conscious bias where Christianity is still beyond the pale. And so the language that John Verbeke coined and owns, I don't own it in any way, um, of the religion that's not a religion, mm. which, you know, this is actually, in some sense, a very nice, ultimately kind of like a process or an algorithm of, okay, we, we know that we have baby in bathwater, we want to yeah. throw out the water, but we don't want to throw out the baby. We're not quite clear how to do that. So how do yeah. we separate baby and bathwater? That's effectively what that phrase means. You want to just get rid of the ugly dogmatism and the, you know, of religion, and then and then find out what what the essence is, or what you know, what the truest part of that is. Yeah, yeah, which is itself a religious process if taken properly. Yeah. Um. And. You know, that exploration was a very deep exploration and taking a look at that and, and beginning to, to do things like, uh, for a moment, I called it the rectification of names. So mm -hmm. noticing how many terms that are in the category of religion and or the category of transcendent. Oh, have, that's a good subject. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But just turned upside down and, and in many cases, deliberately and intentionally, but if even if not, um, made rendered confusing. So words like faith, for example, or... or uh, uh, supernatural question. everybody uses yeah. that as to cast aspersions on religion but they, they they have all kinds of supernatural sort of assumptions that they don't question you know at the same time and we all do so i always thought that's kind of a funny one but yeah and oddly enough i was just having a chat about exactly that that, that the word supernatural has been tagged as shorthand for meaning hocus pocus or yeah. for sure made up right um and for sure made up in a maximally stupid and or manipulative way. Like that's like kind of what the word supernatural means in, in that culture vernacular. Um, and then, you know, faith means something like uh, kind of maximally degenerate delusional beliefs, something like that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's what you think it means, then you're not going to participate in it. So it's like sort of a perfect way of painting um, uh, shit all over, all and, over and also the people who are engaged in those critiques are full of all kinds of bizarre forms of faith which they haven't questioned within their own souls <laughs> i would say i mean it's all it's always the case <laughs> soul's another one by the way but not yeah soul's uh, another word yeah exactly yeah and if, if i wanted to do kind of the lefty thing and psycho psychologize those who are making that critique mm -hmm. it's because they've actually built that aversion in their own soul and so, of course, they, they can't directly deal with their own faith because they avoid their own faith. And so it ends up being quite, how do you say, either random willy-nilly or reverse. Because yeah. um, they can't look at it directly because they believe that faith is a bad idea in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, and I find that, like, 
I've noticed I've been in events which resemble church, although they're not in a Christian building and the words that are coming out are not are not Christian, but people are behaving. There's there's a preacher up there and there's a bunch of people sitting in, in chairs and they're shaking each other's hands and they're doing you know they're they're repeating different things <laughs> and it's like they're the church they're, they're they're the the most you know hipster kind of people who are you know way beyond uh ordinary christianity who are behaving like presbyterians so anyway <laughs> um yeah in fact maybe we can kind of intercept there because i i think i ended up participating in a lot of that kind of thing yeah because i, I didn't fully grasp the the necessity, and the word necessity is critical, I and mean, it's we sort of underlined two or three times, the necessity of God in any in effort to do religion um, or, let's say, proper liturgy. And so we, we can form liturgies, we can create communion, we do it all the time. Sometimes it yeah. even has a material form, sometimes it's the Super Bowl. Um, but we, we, we do that all the time. We can't even help do it. It's how multiplicity forms unity. It's how, it's how we form groups that are, that are able to have an identity that does something as a group. That's just a natural function. Yeah. That's not the problem. Yeah. I mean, even what I said, I didn't mean that to sound mean spirited. I think it's, it's a kind of a natural thing. You know, it's not always bad, but, you know, but yeah, yeah the, the, that is not the problem. The problem is something like, um, like proper orientation or directionality and proper, hmm, how do you say it right? Not integration, not architecture. Um, well, let's we'll say- the, the, I'd the, say wholeness, the, like the thing has to be whole. Yeah, whole, whole and wholesome, right? Whole and wholesome. Wholesome, yeah, you used that word before. No. It has to be well integrated. It has to be well integrated in a fashion which is based upon a deep health. Maybe that's a, right, a good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. And I'm speaking about kind of the embryological perspective, right? So the process whereby this very insanely intensely complex process of the, the grabbing of molecules out of the, um, the, the uterine environment milieu and out of the placental milieu, and then the assembling of them into this extremely highly complex organism how it works right it actually hangs together as a well-formed human and you know how do you avoid the errors how do you make sure you don't accidentally have an arm growing out of your forehead or that your heart's reversed which sometimes happens and oftentimes most of the time is terminal. um so this that that thing whatever that process is um something genesis is probably the right word so that then becomes very close to the center of the heart of the religious problem like how do we how do we do communion? But how do we do communion right? How do we do it well? How do we do it in a fashion which is both whole and in relationship with the whole, like the largest whole? Yeah. We're also whole sem, right? It, it orients us towards a higher and higher health, something which is well constituted and um, well integrated. Um, and and there are ways that you know people have been th thinking about that for thousands of years <laughs> you know and so it's a very strange thing that people are trying to invent this out of nowhere in a sense well i, I wouldn't say in that some ways but there, when it's all kind of there right why wouldn't you go into the older versions of that 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 have some kind of a yeah so, know, staying so, power 
So let's let's pick that apart. Um, let's see, okay, so me first, do do me first, and then third persons to keep it kind of in the right location. So, okay. I guess I've always run through both an aesthetic filter. I actually have a profoundly aesthetic mm. sense of it, um, and then a and then a kind of an intellectual rigorous rigorousness filter, and both. And I kind of try to use both to to parallax truth and, and so, beauty. Yeah, truth and beauty. And if if I'm sitting in a room. And there's people who are ostensibly well-intentioned and trying to do something like religion, um, you know, this kind of maybe a new age context. And and I have a, an aesthetic sense of like mm, something's a little bit off. Then then that's I will respond with mm, something's a little bit off. And so just FYI, and that happened all the time, constantly. I'd be in a, a context where people are doing the thing like you're talking about. Where okay, that looks like church. In fact, maybe it's even calling itself a church. Um, and there's something right, there's something right, but there's also something weirdly wrong, and I can't really put my finger on it, but I'm going to reserve what, I'm going to pull back from that, because I don't want to get involved in something I don't understand and feel wrong, what's over there, and then try to use this rigor thing to figure it out. Um, okay, so that's, that's me, so let's move over here. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge two things. One is that um, the, the older religions you know, failed in some deeply catastrophic way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, let's just say, for example, the the 30 years war, the, the, the schisms yeah. of the Orthodox and the Catholic, a thousand, you know, whatever, 1200 years ago, the schisms between the Protestants and the, and the Catholics and the mm -hmm. bloody wars that happened, right? And that, that was happening in the birth of the United States. And in many cases, frankly, the birth of modernity. Modernity was born out of a whoa, this is bad, like super bad, really not good. What do we do? How do we find a place to find peace? Um, and certainly the birth of liberalism was in, was seeded in, in a skepticism of the capacity of Christendom to produce mm -hmm. peace, right? That's a, a wound. That's a very profound wound. And it was an earned wound. It was a real thing. You know, mm -hmm. Christendom did not successfully produce peace for generations. Okay, now what? So let's try something else. And at least within the context of... of uh, religion, uh, sorry, in the context of Christendom, liberalism has successfully produced peace. We actually haven't had meaningful conflicts between Protestants and, and Catholics. However, we have created new religions called Nazism and Communism, and those guys have been you know, producing lots of blood, so it, it didn't sort of solve the problem categorically, but we need to be mindful of the fact that that wound still very much lives in our culture. And it's a big part of the hesitancy to hearken back to the mm, old. Absolutely, tradition. yeah. And then, and then the second thing is that there was, there has been waged a very successful um, mimetic propaganda war, much of which is material, on the part of the Enlightenment project against uh, the characteristics of religion that initially were um, purely. The bad parts, let's say, or, or, or superstitions, for example, mm -hmm. or power. Okay, the church is endeavoring to engage in power control that's well outside of its proper scope. So we're going to fight that fight. But of course, as the fight got fought, it expanded and expanded and expanded. So we're living again many generations on the other side of that. So those who are anti-religious could do things like point to Mar the moon missions and point to transistors and lasers and say, "Thus I demonstrate the truth of my world." Where's your demonstration of the truth of your world? You, know, you, you, you went through the Black Death and there were churches full of people who died praying for salvation and healing. 
I've got penicillin. You got it. So the, the secular world created an arena, or found itself in an arena, and then successfully ran the table in that arena against the, the sacred world. And we live in the aftermath of that as well. And so people who are then coming in the late 20th, early 21st century, young people, generally speaking, who are noticing the necessity of the spiritual and noticing ultimately the necessity of the religious, um, you move from kind of like agnostic atheist to spiritual, not religious, and then you move from spiritual, not religious to endeavoring to assemble some kind of new religion are actually doing this religion is not a religion process. Okay, we're not going to go back and connect with a, with an ancient lineage, qual lineage, either because it's just been cut, and there isn't such a thing right now, or because we don't trust it. But we are going to try to go back and assemble. And by the way, since we're doing that, why don't we do the perennial philosophy thing? Why don't we grab all religions? Like, why would we pick any you know, particular lineage? You know, why, we, we, we can't even choose between Protestantism, Catholicism, and, and Orthodoxy. So screw it. I'm going to open it up. We're going to look at multiple different lineages of Hinduism and, and Buddhism and you know, shamanic practices. Like, it's all these, all these things that are under the category of old-fashioned religious lineages. And we're going to put that in a big toolkit. Of course, this is a very mid-century, you know, Aldous Huxley and all those guys program. Mm. We're going to try to pull them out. And we're going to try to figure out how to produce a more refined version of what they were doing and assemble that into a new construct. I, I would say that's the actual project that at its best ha that has been going on coming from that world. It's not a from scratch at Nilo. It's a grab, look at, rotate, blow the dust off, chop this piece, stick it together kind of a thing, a little bit like, um, you know, post-apocalyptic people coming across an old junkyard full of cars. I'm like, okay, none of these are working cars, but maybe we can harvest pieces. And put something together. together that works, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, which is all well and good, but, but, and herein lies the problem, um, Who's your God <laughs> at the end of the day? Uh, what ended up being uh, imported, broadly speaking, was either narcissism, either, which is to say, I am my God. I am my God. Uh, mm -hmm. okay. or, or the mind, right? or, or technology, right? some variation on that theme. Uh, and then that's tricky, right? Because if I, am, if I am ultimately the ground that is judging what is baby and what is bathwater, if I am judging what pieces of these old lineages are right and true and trying to throw away and judging what needs to be thrown away, then I am putting myself in the position of being the ultimate determinant of what is capital T true. Well, that's yeah. tricky, right? That's tricky because then ultimately I'm importing me as the, as the actual center of the universe. Um, and by the way, given the fact that we live in the most narcissistic age ever by lots, yeah. by margins, that's a uh, like a low energy point that's, that's hard to escape from. Like if you're using a methodology that is sort of implicitly narcissistic and you live in a narcissistic world and therefore are probably deeply narcissistic in lots of unconscious ways, it's going to be difficult to escape from. So a lot of those efforts are captured in that location. Uh, and then um, the other even lower energy place, of course, is, is technology. It's going to be the... The, the, the god and of course this language is now relatively commonplace it's like we are building gods in the ai and robotics world and um mm -hmm. 
you can kind of see how easy it is to get there because it has the tremendous advantage of actually proving itself. Yeah, yeah, we can build rockets, we can build, you know, penicillin, we can, this thing, this methodology, this process whereby we prove truth, capital T truth, that the epistemology of science produces capital T truth in a way that religion, religions, let's say in the past, weren't able to. Um, mm. Let's put our chips on that. And of course, now it's become quite self defined, right? Effective accelerationism is a uh, teleological, even an eschatological religion premised entirely upon the escape velocity of the techno-intellectual world. Yeah, Uh, and you might buy that if you didn't have another sort of organ, you know, Gertrude would call it an organ, (laughs) that senses that there's something not quite right about it. And you said something interesting interesting in your, your previous interview i think it was with jim about beauty beauty often being the primary let's yeah. say uh, not truth in the sense this is true and this is not true it was you know there seems to be a kind of a macho type of attitude towards reality more like something calls to you you know and then you 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 hear that that calling and uh it, it doesn't have it doesn't have a, like it, it doesn't necessarily have a name that you can, you know, you can mm. that you can uh, go out and, you know, advertise and tell people what it is. I mean, yeah, that's been my experience anyway. It hasn't been like, OK, I with my ego, I personality go and search for this thing and then find it. That doesn't work. It, it, fi- it kind of finds you or or it kind of appears to you. I mean, beauty finds you. You don't like can't construct it in, in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That this, makes this sense. Language, yeah, absolutely. This language that I was just reading, uh, I think two nights ago, was something like, um, you know, uh, the creation story that, that God was so beautiful that He allured non-being out of itself into being. Hmm, I like that. So so beautiful that even non-being was pulled <laughs> into beingness. As like, right. oh, that's a- and that, that's the only way that non-being will ever be pulled into into beingness because non-beingness is just mechanical and and you know can't go into it. Um, yeah. So yes, I think this is actually we're getting down to a, a very precise ground. So as I began to move into this last phase, the aesthetic piece was quite potent. The experiences that I was having in here which I had been trained, by the way, in my Scythian journeys to notice the difference between a wholesome and a non-wholesome community mm-hmm. uh, in a very profound way. Like, where, where is the wholesomeness coming from? Is it just superficial or is it deep? And as I found myself here, I noticed that I was in a truly wholesome community, profoundly wholesome across a wide variety of different dimensions. And the, the aesthetic sensibility was lighting up. Okay, this is good direction. Keep going in this direction. Follow it wherever it leads you, you know, attracted into. Um, and, you know, and ultimately that landed me in a Christian church. I mean, to kind of teleport through things that we've, I've talked about this sort of stuff in previous podcasts. So I don't want to belabor the point. Um, and, and then I had to come to terms with my own personal allergy and then the, our cultural allergy, which had been prohibiting me or preventing me from being able to, to be, to engage that lineage honestly, like let's just say honesty is exactly the right word, uh, and, and with the, with the adequate level of, of effort to work through the various um, prevarications and um, 
uh, slanders that had been produced and hardwired into, into concepts, again, like, say, faith and supernatural, uh, there's a swimming against that process that had to happen for a while to recover those elements so that I could then begin to navigate this space um, on its own terms and properly. Um, and so the, the aesthetic was enough to hold me in that in that piece. And then I applied an intellectual effort over a period of, of several mm -hmm. months of significant intensity and kept noticing. And there was a lot of encouragement because I would notice, oh, as it turns out, my my perspective on this question was completely confused. I mean, in many ways, the upside down. And so my my sort of inhibition or my concern with this, this piece of it was actually illusory. It wasn't really with it. It was with a projection or a frame of it. As I begin to understand it on its own terms, I begin to realize that it makes a whole lot, lot of sense, like a profound sense. In many ways, it, it resolves problems that I've been holding on to for a while. I've actually been stepping in. I'm now stepping into a higher degree of freedom as a result of integrating with, say, for example, sin, as to put mm -hmm. one out there that's quite challenging to navigate through. Um, yeah, and then you know, and then the last sort of six months of that piece, you know, three months of but kind of a deep being held in a place of trying to chop my way through, and then increasingly getting velocity, like increasingly being able to to punch through concepts, punch through notions, realize that my previous conceptions were were you know negative or improper biases, and then beginning to live it, and noticing that as I lived it more and more deeply, it unfolded more and more richly. And that relationships just began to show up that were, how do you say, again, wholesome, like they were woven of the right kind of fabric. And the, the liturgical consequences of entering into this properly were increasingly evident in life, in myself, in my relationship with my wife, my daughter, and friends and community, et cetera. And that, um, that sort of brought me to the threshold of saying, okay, I'm in. I'm going, I will be baptized into this as a, a member of this lineage. Interesting to me, like we talked about beauty and um, the, the calling of the aesthetics. And, you know, I live in, in, in France and you can see this you know, re remnants of an extreme, you know, extremely intense kind of culture that doesn't exist so much, you know, uh, any, anymore. You know, there's the, this, this sort of layer of uh, of of uh, yeah, the secular culture and then and then there's this deep layer that's there but not being used it would appear mm -hmm. to me uh, so that was that was one thought i had and the other the other thought i had was it's interesting that your wife kind of brought you there led you there because mm. that's that's kind of it's a calling that comes from the aesthetic it comes from falling in love in a sense mm. uh rather than an aesthetic of figuring it out in in some sort of rational uh you know moment. yeah that's that's really quite quite beautiful if you think about it in terms of a partnership right, which is which a marriage yeah. must be that the the aesthetic the beautiful the falling in love led and held and then, and then the rational and this was actually quite practical like she was she was asking she would ask me lots of questions her journey was parallel to mine like she has a whole story which she may or may not share um I've also struggled with a lot of these questions. She was raised Catholic, so she had a different mm. sort of set of um, And so we would sit down and we would actually hash through the thinking through part. So kind of in the container of falling in love, the thinking through part was still very much there of saying, okay. And, you know, in many ways asking, she, she would ask the questions, which is kind of perfect. She would ask the yeah. question and I would try to respond to the questions. And then she would sort of have a sense of, mm, 
or mm, you know, yes, that's going, what you're saying makes sense and it's hanging together or no, no, that's wrong or off or something's missing. And so we had this dialogical process together that contained all these different elements. Um, yeah, so that's actually nice to put in there, by the way. This is not my journey, this is our journey. Mm, right. So I was also thinking as you were speaking, uh, you said that, you know, there was a sort of accumulation of insights that led you to be able to get it, you know, because in, in breaking through kind of whatever superficial or cultural or, you know, super ego notions of what the thing is. Mm. Um, I was thinking that that and, and then you you mentioned in your other talk that that like you, you, you got the Trinity, you know, and uh, that you understood the Trinity. And so so I wanted to ask you about that. I know that's an enormous topic. Like that's probably like a five-hour podcast. But oh, but I but yeah. I'm I'm just I'm interested. In, it's like what is it that you saw in the Trinity uh, that that you 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 found so, uh, so profound? Okay. So first, somewhat interesting is that as as you sort of began shifting into this new topic, um. I noticed that I had two things light up. One was the transcendent, and the second one was the Trinity. Mm. And then when you said the Trinity, it's like, hmm, that's apropos. Uh, so if I want to kind of put the big arc into big milestones, particularly for anybody who's kind of vaguely coming from the world that I came from, I would say the first portal is the transcendent. And so, hey, mm. if you're living in a world that doesn't have the transcendent as a part of it, that's wrong. <laughs> and so add the transcendent, and, you know, that's a journey, but that's a really good how do I say, I will put my chips in that, do, yeah. do that. Okay, yeah. so then we then when you're in the transcendent, and now you're kind of in the world of, say, spiritual, not religious at a minimum, or experimenting with different kinds of religion, or frankly, even an existing religious lineage, but you to fight that fight. Um, the Trinity, okay. So, as you said, this is, no, I do not understand the Trinity. That's not the right way of describing it. Um, in fact, something like one major piece of the trinity is the, the way i visualize it is kind of like a crown and the vertical part of the crown is orienting in the direction of the mystery so it's beyond it's beyond understanding almost by necessity or by definition and then there's the part of the crown that in some sense you can put on your head and that is the limits of understanding um and so when you take uh Okay, so we'll go back. So I, I had trained my mind on, on Western philosophy and then brought in a lot of Eastern philosophy as well, but very heavily trained on Western. A Greek, Platonic, a little bit of medieval, tons of contemporary. Uh, so like people like Foucault and Deleuze and folks like that. Um, and there's a lot of, sort of basic, deep, bottom in the stack, philosophical questions like, unity and multiplicity um and what are ont what are the ontological primitives of any possible reality and what happened is, is as i was <laughs> it's funny when i first encountered the trinity by necessity right shoot thinking about christianity i'm gonna have to deal with the trinity um it was about as as far into the you know the yucky or to be avoided piece like it I had original frame of it as being a very sloppy and silly, weird, superstitious nonsense. I don't even have the right language for it exactly yet, but it was uh, not even, it's like, a, it's like a bad comic book, something like that, Poor, a poorly written comic book. 
Okay, but now I have to take this seriously. So I started delving into it. And of course, my very first experience was, oh, these guys are legit, <laughs> super legit. They've been thinking, they were thinking about this stuff hard. And, oh, oh, shoot. Okay, so at the bottom of the Trinity, you have the basic ontology of unity and multiplicity in relationship where relationality is more fundamental. And so we have now characteristics. Think about any ontology you want to build with. You have to have an ontology that includes the notion of unity or identity. So it's sort of mm -hmm. like you, Andy, or star, stars, or chairs, or anything, like anything that has a notion of unity. And it has to have multiplicity, which includes the, both the process of, of how does unity produce multiplicity, differentiation, how does the, how does multiplicity integrate into multiplicity and into unity? So communion, um, and and just the category of multiplicity at all, like as, as a thing, three threeness, uh, and then relationality has unity and multiplicity come into relationship, um, and the reality and the relationality is more fundamental, and this is the uh, big thing that's happening right now is this phrase the uh, the relationship is more fundamental than the volata. This is a kind of a profound ontological proposition, uh, which I'm not going to defend necessarily explain right now, but the, the key takeaway is that if we have, say, for example, we just say you and me, oh gosh, trying to make it simple is not easy. Um, yeah, I'll just state it as such. If people are interested in investigating it, there's, there's ways for that to be investigated. But the, the proposition that an ontology that is premised on particular beings is unable to properly account for relationship, but an ontology that is premised on relationality is able to include the beings or the relata that are in relationship. But at the very, very bottom of that has to be something which is pure relationality in the most sort of fundamental, and I don't want to say abstract, but pure sense. And now we're going to start getting, it's going to start getting even faster. Um, in, if something is pure relationality, then we have to talk about what are the characteristics that are intrinsic to the notion of relationality, which is to say that it has to have the ability to be in relationship with. Well, we have something which has the ability to be in relationship with, and we're going to have something that has the characteristic of creativity or creation, which is a quality, one of the qualities, one of the categories of relationship. Mm -hmm. We can, if you'd like to, we can unpack, for example, why the Trinity is constructed where you have Father, Son, and Spirit. Father has the location of creation, creator, you know, generator, uh, eternity. Son has the characteristic of creation in essence, uh, a begottenness, which is a quality or a kind of relationality within the subset of creation or creativity. By the way, I, I can't help but end up being an anti-philoloquy person. So this puts me into the Orthodox camp, not the Catholic camp. Um, Sorry, you're going to have to explain that to me. Uh, there was a, the, 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 be the beauty of the history of our religion is that at least in some sense, that only maybe a minor sense, nonetheless a non-trivial sense, the basis of the great schism that split the Church of Christendom, you know, whatever it was, 1100 AD or something like that, between the Eastern and the Western churches, was that the, 
Western church, the Pope introduced a phrase in the creed, which was that um, the, the son is begotten from the father mm -hmm. um, and that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. So and the son or filioque, or filioque would be the Latin for and the son. Mm -hmm. Um, and the Eastern are like, no, no, no. The, the creed before that was the Son is begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeds from the Father, sometimes with the Son, but there's no notion of proceeding coming from Father and Son. And okay, this is a, it's funny. We're, of course, we're talking about the Trinity, so we're in a place mm -hmm. of extremely esoteric, abstract language, but the, yeah. with the notion that the geometry, okay, let me see if I can say it right. So obviously we're, we're, we're now thinking about something in the category of eternity. So we have to be thinking in the same in the same way that we would think about math. And so mm -hmm. in the, in the, well, well, what about this, Jordan? Jordan? I, can I throw in like a, a Buddhist thing, which is a way for me to try to understand this yeah. is like the non-duality of duality and non-duality. That's a triad, right? Is that or, or it, the, the, the three kayas of the Buddha, the Buddha has three bodies. One is unmanifest. One is one is subtle, and one is one is here. It's love, or it's it's. Ah, um, okay. So, so uh, does that does that does that map on at all to the Trinity? I mean, that's the Buddhist Trinity, you could say. But <clears throat> I would say we have to, although I don't understand it well enough. But for example, that notion of love, right? Love speaks to the notion of relationality in its essence, right? What love yeah. requires a beloved. I mean, lover and a beloved to be loved, which means that love, or I think about the relationship is more fundamental than the relata, love taken as love is pure relationality. And then it, by its nature, calls forth, because it requires, it calls the beloved and the lover, which are characteristics that are intrinsic to the notion of love. But um, any particular beloved and lover are not the thing that defines love. Love defines its own, its own essence to say mm -hmm. um so you know that that's the key is to put it there but then we have to have the, the ability to be in and this is the, the, you know, the big difference between the christian and the buddhist of um how do you say personhood personhood right so it's not an undifferentiated um or a non-personal impersonal and the trinity brings forth the notion of uh, personhood in, in necessity. And, and we can think about that in terms of what is the surface area or the volume of relationality, um, uh, uh, pure relationality to be the kind of the highest possible point. Remember, we're trying to find something that's at the top of the stack, mm -hmm. principle. principle. What is that with which you, Andrew Sweeney, can have the, the most intimate relationship with? the highest possible complete relationship with which is able to you're able to unfold yourself and 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 uh come into contact with the most well some aspects of you mostly intellectual aspects can come into a conceptual relationship with impersonal at the impersonal it's almost like the intellectual is nature it's the impersonal mm -hmm. um, but your heart can't come into relationship with the impersonal it's not the nature yeah. of the heart yeah. the heart has to come into relationship in person Right, it is it's a personal relationship in its essence. Like there's no other way around it. So even kind of like yeah, a proof of existence, the fact that we humans have this diversity of capacities of relationality, which we have with each other, 
right? I can be in relationship with you impersonally, and I can be in relationship with you personally. Well, then the category of personal relationship must be included in that which represents the the whole of the whole. At the yeah, well, I, I agree with that. I fully agree with that as, you know, a practicing Vajrana Buddhist, which is not a, which is different, I think, than the, 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 the Mahayana and the Hinayana Buddhists in that relationality is, is the ultimate thing. Uh, that intimacy and relationality is, is the ultimate. Um, uh, so that, that part, I, I don't feel to be contradictory to uh, my own path in a sense. Oh, wow. <laughs> so what, what I'm perceiving is that I would propose, and I don't know if this is accurate, obviously, but I would propose that if 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 I'm if I'm correct, that the Trinity is the um, most compact, necessary, and sufficient for any possible reality, and, mm-hmm. and that we do this, we can do that work conceptually, and then we notice that to actually do it properly, then have to do it actually relationally that the variation like the, the process of say buddhism would arrive at the same location mm-hmm. um and then the, the the big difference is that christianity has the incarnation which buddhism has a variation on that slightly but not quite mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. the incarnation is also necessary this is important the incarnation is in fact necessary for a maximally complete compact um, let's say ontology of God um, have to have Father, Son, Holy Spirit and we can sort of talk about how that maps to different categories of different religions we have to have this notion of begotten this notion of proceeding we have to have pure relationality we have to have love we have to have unity multiplicity we have to have community we have to have differentiation we have to have all those characteristics and then as we start moving further and further we actually get this one particular piece that comes out right, from the eternal into time there has to be a moment where the full personhood, the full, yeah, you know, the full personhood of of the divine manifests itself incarnate, right? Makes itself mm-hmm. part of the chronological flow um, to enable the suturing or the communion to actually have a touch point that is available to that which is operating at the level of the finite. So, yeah. so that's where and- what. I- I sort of went through all those checks, like check, 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 and I landed on it. Then I had the aesthetic sense, that the aesthetic sense of what happens when when you come into harmony, like when you've got Mm -hmm. a bunch of people who are just beginning to try to find harmony, and then suddenly you hear, like there's a click, right? There's like everything's moving, there's a click, and you're in harmony. And Mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, like I've thought about a lot of things. I've been working with Forest Landry stuff for years. Um, all those boxes are getting checked. And as I check these boxes, I notice an increasing felt sensation of harmony. And then when that last piece dropped of the necessity of incarnation, then the, the it was a profound feeling of not just, oh, this is exactly right. Not just a, not a profound feeling of feeling harmony, but a profound feeling of participating in harmony. And, and that, mm-hmm. that I think, probably is the actual moment of my conversion right there. If you really want to put a very fine point on it, sitting there, reading, 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 thinking, 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 reading, 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 and then all of a sudden, something like I actually became part of this thing. I transitioned from being third person thinking about it to noticing my way, I was noticing a way of coming into relationship with it where suddenly the relationship clicked. And I was actually just part of it. I was part of the whole. 
in a very particular kind of way, right? Not a drop in the ocean part of a hole, but a very particular kind of relationship. And it was like, whoa, okay, that's that. Like all the intellectual stuff just checked out and I, you can kind of let go. All, all it really does is if it checks out, it lets go. It doesn't do anything more. And then the aesthetic part checked out and it kind of holds. And then suddenly there was something more like the essential and the existential of, oh, okay, here we are. We are actually now sitting in the good. The, the beautiful brought us here, the truth coordinated, and now the good is actually present. Like the hermeneutics of presence is maybe the way of, of ending that arc. Hmm. Well, I'm glad we got to the incarnation because that gives me the opportunity to ask the question that I want. want the, the next question I really wanted to ask you, actually. Um, and uh, Bonina Roy brought this up, actually, uh, in, in, a, in a discussion uh, we were having. Um, so, so uh, you know, I, I was listening to a, a podcast with Nick Cave. Do you know Nick Cave? I don't think so. He's uh, like, he was in a band called The Birthday Party and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Hard, hard rock dude. Uh, very biblical, like in his early stuff, but he's the last guy you would ever think that would convert to Christianity. And he, and I, so I'm listening to him talk about how he's now going to church, and you know, uh, it was just a shock to his fans because you know, but he it was obviously intensely biblical all the way along, like just in the way he you know, in his poetics, uh, a bit like a, a Bob Dylan of of hard rock or something like that. Okay. Or or, in any case. Um, and I was listening. The interviewer uh, was interviewing him and and asked him this this question, and which I wanted to ask you, which sounds like a bit of a cheeky question. But uh, he asked the question like, "What is what does Jesus mean to you? What does Jesus Christ mean to you?" So so, and that was Bonita's question as well. So if if you're a Christian, what is Jesus? What who is Jesus? What is <laughs> that's the question that's the big question <laughs> yeah okay well i i have um well it's just better this is an unlimited or an un it's not the full list these are two things that come up that are in the foreground uh so one is every time that i actually feel love and notice it I remember that that is a way of being in relationship with Jesus. So Jesus means to me the embodied experience, the experience of, 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 of the human experience of love, the, the source of that. Like in some sense, like I can say, okay, I feel warmth. And I look at the fire and I see the fire as the source of the warmth. When mm -hmm. I feel love, I notice the presence of Jesus. So that's, what, that's one thing of what he means to me. Is like, you know, I am the light and the truth, uh, the, the source of that. Um, and then when I when I perceive it or experience it in in creation, right, in, in physicality, in reality, I'm oriented towards the source of that and reminded of the source of that that holds it together. The other uh, aspect is this aspect of, let's say, the way, the, the like a hand reaching out in in the darkness right so the metaphor actually is funny I, I came to this with ken lowry um the experience of of a cold you're, you're in a cave and it's a dark cave and you're trying to find your way out 
So you're, you're climbing and you're, you're, you're seeking kind of an upgrading, you're engaging in hill climbing. So it's hard going, but you can, you can kind of sense up and down, you're moving up. Um, and then by the way, the, the opening of the transcendent is something like having a little bit of light and a little bit of fresh air that gives you a better sense of upness. And as you move up, there's a changing because the upness doesn't change in the dark, but light does change as you move closer to the source of light. Um, so the transcendent opens up that, increase that as a directionality and dimensionality. But, but Christ is like if somebody drops a rope through that opening all the way down to where you are. And it's a, it's a, it's a hand, a thing that you can hold on to that you can return to that guides you in that directionality of up, which is equal to our capacity as deeply finite beings. Right? So this ability to return, the ability to participate in mercy, for example, like self-mercy, self-forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, once again, you know, this is funny. You know, nowadays it's like, okay, once again, you know, I, I made a, I came off the way, whatever it is, I got angry, I got confused, I got uh, greedy, whatever it happens to be. Okay, you know, and remember, yeah, that's right. You, you actually do love me in spite of all of that. And you are providing the way they enter back into your mercy. You know, have mercy on me, restore me back, remind me of what it's like to be back on the way. And, and then let me now ask, what is the next, what's the direction I should go now? Like, what's the thing that needs to happen now? Um, and that, by the way, can be found sometimes in scripture and sometimes in prayer that last part, like what's the the kind of the content of relationality or in church and in church here, I mean, in terms of other people who are mm -hmm. in the, in that, in the spirit. Um, and that's actually also very powerful. So maybe a third piece is this, this concrete like directionality of uh, uh, choice. So, okay. I have uh, gone off the way again. I, I'm tempted to use harsher language, but we'll just keep it. You're a sinner. You're a, a lowly sinner. Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah, a lowly sinner. But, but this, yeah, this is when you're in the self-flagellation moment where you've actually yeah, like, yeah, got it. Off yeah. this, you, you're ashamed of yourself. Shame is probably the right place. Yeah, shame. Place. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Place of shame. So then you can tap into that mercy. That mercy is a mercy that you don't earn. You can't earn. You can't deserve, right? It's not that kind of thing. It's infinite in nature and it's faithful. Well, it's a very powerful relationship to be in is to have access to that. But it's not, um, it's a yoke, right? It's a light yoke. It's an easy yoke, but it's a yoke nonetheless, right? You go, okay, whew, I accept that mercy. And now remind me, what is it that I, where do I need to go now? Like, what's the right next step? And on occasion, I find myself, by the way, in my life, in circumstances where I've been so, I've worked myself so through that I can't actually orient towards the right next step. Like literally just, I'm just going to lay here and not even move. I got nothing. Well, Christ has something. <laughs> so like what is it and it might be a word from some person in the church it might be a piece something in scripture it might be something in your prayers but it gives you a next step and the next step is usually simple apologize to your wife or apologize to your child or call up somebody who you you have been um not coming into right relationship mm -hmm. with so the right okay. next step in, in a way which we can't you can't figure out on your own yeah yeah and then, and then that's you know how, how life works is next steps, and so that's um, uh, in some sense the, to me at least, and this is now very sort of my particular and not wise theology. I really perceive the Father in the from the point of view of that light, like the, the notion that there is light at the end of the tunnel, like the notion there is fresh air, the notion that there is the transcendent at all. 
but very maybe a quality of the impersonal, like closer to the impersonal, very difficult to uh, to grasp what that relationship feels like. Mm-hmm. Whereas Christ is more about the you know the the, the deeply personal, like an actual dude. Yeah. That, you know, his breath smells like something. He has like you know a, um, a shadow of beard if he doesn't shave. You know that kind of stuff, which is a very different quality. Um, and that next stepness, and that that real mercy. And I've had that experience in real life where, say for example, with Vanessa, where she is in fact absolved me like a relationship where i i am in the wrong and she has absolved me not verbally but at the heart level mm-hmm. and that open space and of course then like oh christ is that like where that comes from in the reality at all the fact that exists in reality at all that's him so that's my answer mm, that's very beautiful mm. yeah um well the other i guess the other question I still had it's almost like that that would almost be like a way to end this conversation because I think you got that's a very deep place to be but um I was thinking about what you were saying about uh what we need you know you said we need a congregation or we need a church we need uh we need to pray these kind of things um these are like things that human beings somehow need to do and uh so I was thinking about your notion of, of civium and and I was also thinking, you know, Sangha congregation, you can't really do it by yourself. Obviously, you need a congregation. You know, um, I was thinking about thinking about Jordan Peterson's kind of Christianity. Some people I, I don't want to be personal or anything like that, but the need to find some sort of some sort of Sangha, some sort of congregation is essential right and then and then also the need to call the need to have a language to a deep language to call out to the divine in some kind of a way so those two those two uh things struck me in in your other conversations about and i wonder why that you didn't come back like why don't people come to that conclusion like i guess it's (laughs) like yeah it's kind of obvious in a way let's let's take this first with the notion of congregation um because what we need, what we need is something that brings us in, brings us into communion. And it's going to have to have three distinct characteristics. I think people don't just don't think this way. This, this is why. <laughs> they, they didn't yeah. This way. yeah. Uh, but then, we need something that brings us into communion. So I'm going I'm to make that a postulate. You can defend it if you like, but a postulate. And it needs to have three distinct characteristics. One is it needs to bring us into a strong enough communion, sort of the trivial communion that breaks upon uh, meaningfully bad, you know, slightly bad stuff is not going to be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and the strength of communion is actually going to be rather high. The bar is high. And then here I'm kind of pointing to more of the apocalyptic, eschatological, practical eschatology of like, shit is hitting the fan, it's going to get worse. So the, the, the fabric or the ligature, the liturgy, the raveling that makes our community needs to be a, a strong weft. Yeah. We need to be using good rope, hemp, with multiple different knots. Right? We're not yeah, making like, this. We're not going to do Netflix tonight. <laughs> you know, that's not the right kind of communion. It's uh, not the right kind of communion, right? Yeah. Because big things are, big things are up. Uh-huh. Um, okay, second uh it needs to include the whole of life 
This is one of the biggest challenges with the flavors of communion that we tend to enter into. You know, we enter into communion with a uh, uh, a bicycling, you know, triathlon triathlon club. Okay, but now 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 I have to sort of trade off that communion with the communion with my family. And now I'm, but there's nothing larger that's integrating that into a full wholeness that allows those to be part of something. So it has to actually integrate the whole of life. And I mean, not just my own life, but life itself. It has to integrate uh, family and children and elderhood. And it has to integrate economy and nature, right? We actually have to be a community that is strong enough and it has to be complete enough. It needs to be holistic, the whole of life, the whole world. Yep. And, and then, and the last piece is both trivial and uh, transcendent. It, it has to orient us into relationship with that which is of the ultima, of the actual ultima, the, the, the transcendent that is outside the whole of life, which is the only basis which can enable us to have proper orientation in a context as large as the whole of life. The only basis which can be strong enough to actually maintain us in the, in the relationship with the most meaningful interventions. And so we need to have something like, say, true north, if you'd like, or the, the, the actual north star, or the highest point or the ultimate concern. Uh, and so, and, and by the way, is able to bring things into their proper organization. What, what can provide the organizing principle that can allow us to, to put our, the relationships inside our holistic communion into their proper balance? Like, well, when, sh when should I be spending time with my wife as opposed to my daughter? Well, that's actually very hard. Well, if I have something that transcends all of that and actually has an order built into it that is eternal, is, is utterly unsubject to the movement of time and space, then one, I can be sure that it's strong enough to deal with whatever, say, for example, the acceleration singularity throws at it. Because no matter how powerful that is, it's all powerful in the, in the, in the realm of the finite. So it's coming, if this is coming from the location of the infinite, it's strong enough. And if it's coming from the location that not undifferentiated, but actually with deep structure all the way down to the most minute level, then it's also clear enough and you know rich enough to inform, to provide the informing. So that would be the ingredient, the distinct characteristics of communion that are necessary. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what about prayer? What does prayer mean to you? What, how do you pray? And what is, what is that? What the hell? A lot of people don't even know what that means, I think, or, um, or, yeah. or, or don't, don't just find it something childish. Um, so I was introduced to prayer as the thing that complements meditation. Mm -hmm. so meditation is the process whereby you get you become disconnected from the attachments um, uh, and the habits of the monkey mind or of the ego mind. Um, but then when you get to the very bottom of that, you are now in the place of, of a certain kind of purity, but also a certain kind of purity that lacks full capacity to come back into relationship with life, the world. Mm -hmm. So prayer is the characteristic of coming from a place that is transcendent to your ego, entering into choice, into action, and sourcing guidance from connection, relational connection, not abstract or semantic connection, but relational connection, sourcing guidance by virtue of actually being in, in something like a well-integrated wholeness with the world itself. Uh, it's funny, I can, I can do a metaphor at the mechanical level. It's a little bit like how the... Um, you know, the heart, the lungs, and the mind are part of a larger body, and therefore we, we resource each other to the 
the heart is not operating separate from the, the lungs and the mind. It's operating in that context and it has ways of being in relationship with and to guide it in its, you know, oh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're running, better start beating faster, that kind of a thing. Um, so it's like that, like it's actually being well held in relationship with the transcendent and with the imminent like part of the world. And then using that relationship to begin guiding choices in in uh, in relationship with the world so prayer is that category then you have to enter into the question what are the practices of prayer that are appropriate mm-hmm. to that category? but notice that distinction like the same thing happens with faith it's like prayer i've now kind of carved out a category that we don't have a good way of resolving that which is fine that. even if you're not a christian or a buddhist or anything else you can Doesn't you matter can yeah still work with that, that. not yeah. only can must right if you're, if you're not yeah. doing it intentionally and well you're doing it poorly and arbitrarily and you're but you're doing it like uh you know it's like yeah but you're doing it most of the time you're you're sourcing well if you're not doing the meditation piece first then you're just doing ideology right you're not actually even to use my old language you're not right 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 right. but when you've done the meditation thing first you've gotten to the point where you actually can act from a place that is not governed by uh, habits and um ideology and attachments but now we're in a new place of what does that kind of governance look like how do you make those kinds of moves of faith by the way is a key piece of it like faith is the faculty for navigating that entire the domain of the transcendent um so then practices so for example um let's see three practices that i've i've, I've engaged in that have so far proven to be quite effective uh one which i really really appreciate and i recommend is uh, fasting and prayer practice so um fast in this case i fast fridays and fasting today as well but that's you know why um and pray right in this case what i what i very specific what i'll do is i will try to i will remind myself that when i feel the mental habits or the physical experience experiences that are kicked up by fasting oh you know, an image of a chocolate bar pops into my head or a donut or something like that, or I just feel hungry. Use that to orient myself to um, gratitude. And just pure, just pure gratitude. The basic prayer practice is bringing into consciousness mental and physical habits and grounding them or resuturing them into a disposition of gratitude and gratitude, not to any particular thing, but gratitude in general, like casting it out to the infant. Yeah, I like the word disposition. It's it's working on a disposition, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's creating, it's forming character. It's, it's you know, prayer is a practice of forming character, creating a disposition or discipleship is another nice piece, like discipline, of building something, it's, it's crafting something, it's changing who you are so that you begin to act on the basis of a new quality of self. Um, and there's also the sense of emptying oneself out in order to receive new information or or receive information that isn't self-generated or solipsistic that you've just created yeah. within your own your own let's world. Just, You're getting outside information. Let's do the other two. So, so behold what you just said, because it's, it's very, very proper. Um, the second one is the the proper ordering of values. So here's where you you sort of praying and you're orienting towards. Okay, well, if if I if I if I imagine, let's just you could do it that way. If I imagine that there is an infinite agent that is willing to help me achieve the things that I'm looking for, 
And by the way, it it does so the best when I am, or, or will only do so when what I am seeking is actually in the direction of the absolute good. I now have this really fun collaborative process of endeavoring to discern within myself, one, what are my values? Right? That's a simple process. What, what, what do I find myself praying for? This is praying for this process. Mm. But also beginning to have a, a, an, an inquiry into what ought I be valuing. Okay. And so, you know, Lord, um, is, if this is what I should be seeking, help me understand more deeply why this is the right direction, how I can get there. Something like that. Um, and if it's not what I should be seeking, help me have the insight to, to grasp why I have been attached to something that is actually not in, in sort of in your, mm. your will. So that, that notion of subordination to a greater will, but with a faith or a, a confidence that it is oriented towards both what is the highest good for me and for the world and has the capacity to navigate that. And then stepping into that space. Uh, for the ordering of my own personal values. So I'm you know, learning, discovering how to order my personal values. And then as you say, that last piece is then then opening information from outside. I acknowledge I that humility, direct humility. Hey, hey, I, I'm remembering that I am both deeply flawed and intrinsically finite. So the world that I'm engaging with overwhelms me and couldn't but overwhelm me. And so I'm asking for guidance. Or I'm asking for something that can help me make you know proper choices to act rightly in the world uh, and to, to further again this is that, that mission of humility or subordination of your will how can i further your will in this world please will use me well as an instrument of your process right. that's like the jesus prayer is is is, is like um, not my will but yours be, be done something like that or I don't know that is the Jesus prayer, but that's definitely part of, that's a good prayerful practice. There probably is a very particular term for it, but I don't know it. Uh, uh, Jesus yeah. prayer that I know it is uh, uh, that Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a or the sinner. Yeah. Learn from kind of the Orthodox guys. And then you have the, the Lord's prayer. Yep. Right. Thy will be done. Mm -hmm. Thy will, not my will. Is is a sort of a very proper thing, which again just speaks to the notion of humility. Not to say that my will is not important, but from a theological perspective, it's one of the signature elements of Christianity that you know, God will. God or that your will is not separate from from a higher no, no, will. That God has granted us the keys to our own soul. I mean, God will not take. We have full responsibility for our own soul. Like we actually have sovereignty. It, very limited sovereignty, but nonetheless, not zero. Um, hmm. And therefore, we have a will. Right? It's important. We can't can't not exercise our will. So when we say your will, not our will, what we're saying is guide us. Help us understand how to deploy our sovereignty in a way which is in alignment with something which is much larger than us that we can't possibly understand. Um, but we trust something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're coming upon this, this, you know, information very late, you know, <laughs> yes. in your life, it would seem. Uh, uh, so uh, the, do you think that I, I was I was wondering about, like, is that an advantage in a way because you've you've 
become exhausted of all the other stuff, a lot of the other stuff. Like mm. there's a, there's a phrase in uh, Buddhism to become weary with samsara, like to become just burned out from everything. And then, uh, you know, there's a fatigue that overtakes us when we're trying to do everything and, and we just can't, you know, we can't do it. So, so then it seems like the religious understanding or insight um often comes at that moment of of, of intense you know quote death experience or fatigue or or, yeah. or... well let me there's a bunch so, so we'll take it from the optimistic side of you <laughs> so yeah so here, here are the advantages let's put it that way here are the advantages one for example is that i had already worn a groove for the trinity to drop into right? if you come to the trinity cold that's going to be a lot of work. Now, maybe if you spend 20, 30 years dedicated to it, you can make that happen on, you know, maybe five. I don't know what the number is, but if you come to a cold, it's going to be a lot of work. In my case, I'd already been doing that work. Mm-hmm. Had a, a Trinity-shaped groove in the... Yeah, the you've been doing a lot of work. And uh, I mean, you've been seeking a lot, right? Before yeah. you, this. So it's not like it's just coming from nowhere. Yeah. So that was helpful. And a lot of work mm-hmm. in lots of different ways, like lots yeah. of, you know, plenty of work on ego, for example. Lots of work on that front. So that was that was an advantage. It has been an advantage. Um, you know, I, I, my life, my throneness in life has developed in me certain capabilities and skills that I am now in a place of being able to gift into the church. It's like, hey, I, I am looking. I'm I'm delighted to be able to gift, and I have some capacities that I have developed as a part as a part of this life arc. Right. I'm, so I'm coming in from the point of view from maturity, and therefore a certain capacity to help and to, to gift mm-hmm. it in obviously in coffee it's about humility and what it, an arbitrarily large amount of learning uh what was the last piece that that, that, that came to me and you mentioned um it was good um well, it was about the exhaustion maybe uh, yeah the exhaustion yeah so yeah. you know one of the things that i think is often the case when you're young and maybe properly when you're young certainly when you're young one of the things you have to do is you have to exit the tribal mode of communion this is i think a big problem in most religions um where you you enter into communion let's say you're you're actually raised in the church and you're well in the church and so you're entering into communion but you may accidentally be entering into communion with the 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 idol of the church that you're in right whatever that works um, and you have to go through a process of differentiation. You have to actually go through an, a leaving, a prodigal son exit, um, so that you can come back in, truly entering into communion with the divine, which is you know, requires a, a process of disillusion with the things that you thought were God, realizing they're not God, and then coming back in. They're just your own images and your own comfort or your own... Whatever it was. So, yeah, got it. Yeah. The kind of thing that the mind of an adolescent is going to build. Like It's yep. very difficult not to but another thing that, that you often will run into is the the feeling of kind of like, you know, God is the sort of stern, authoritarian uh, stick in the butt. Mm. Like, hey, don't, don't like have sex with a whole bunch of God is dead. <laughs> or... uh, don't have sex with a whole bunch of random people. Like, don't, you know, don't go out do the sex, drug, and rock and roll thing. Everybody's like, oh, but I want to do the sex, drug, and rock and roll thing. Yeah. I am able to come from a place of saying, hmm, actually, as it turns out, I did the sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing. And it's actually not that great. Because I have, I have, I am completely, how do I say? You're remote. cured of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you know what? I am utterly uninterested. I'm, I'm, I actually grasp the wisdom of why those are 
let's say sinful. And what I mean is off the mark. Like they are distractions. They were they will waste your time. It's a very good way of putting it. Um, your time on earth is extremely, extremely limited. And they are not vaguely woven out of the fabric of the things that are actually meaningful. And will tend to take you further away. And so you get in these, you know, these digressions of like, oh my gosh, I spent 30 years, you know, partying with people who aren't vaguely my friends because I got a hit of something simulating communion by means of MDMA or alcohol or rock and roll, whatever it happened to be. And now I am three decades later, meaningfully through my time on earth and only one step closer to the things that I wanted anyway. Wow, what a horrible waste of time. Well, the so palace of excess sometimes, you know, that, that quote from William Blake about the palace of excess leads to wisdom or, or whatever. There's there's yeah, a way uh, in which, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. And, and, and then and there's, I can say, but through the palace of excess, not as much as some, but more than most, I would say. Um, and maybe it led to wisdom. And I can say from that place of wisdom to younger people, you don't necessarily have to go down that path. I mean, if it is the path that you're going to be going down, then I can help you there too, by the way. You know, don't do not do these things. That's a bad, you know, I can tell you that's really for you. Um, but for the most part, say, you know, you're not, you're, you're missing nothing. Like if you currently have, if you're feeling that you, what you want to do is you want to be a mother and you're 17 and you just feel very compelled to be a mother, but part of you feels a bit of like FOMO that you're missing out. I can tell you you're not missing out. Like having a career as the vice president of marketing at an ad agency is not a fulfilling thing. You know, mm-hmm. Becoming a billionaire is not a fulfilling thing, young man. Like it's, there's a whole <laughs> bunch of things that aren't actually going to be what you're looking for. As far as I can tell, you know, and I can say this both first person and having conversations with lots of other people. And if you have a deeper pull in a different direction, maybe I can help you just like not have these things pulling you away. So you can just be committed. Like, yeah. If you really want to be a mother, yes, be a mother. It's a it's a profoundly beautiful thing, and if that your is where your heart's yearning, and and all you feel is like a, like a false attraction to something that I can assure you is profane, <laughs> I will assure you it's profane, and and hopefully free, liberate you to pursue that which you actually yearn for anyway. Something like that, like that can be a uh, something that perhaps I can have some service by coming to this so late. Um, and an embodied humility, because uh, you know, I can I can now actually have a very high degree of clarity. Of like, wow, you, know, you guys know stuff that I will probably never really know, which I know is more meaningful than all this other stuff that I happen to know. Neat. <laughs> mm-hmm. What about the suffering piece? Like, because it seems that Christianity places a lot of emphasis on this guy up on the cross being tortured to death and um what is the function of suffering and how do you how do you work through suffering on a spiritual on a spiritual nice. level uh this is a great one i actually had a conversation with you at a, a little pop-up city dedicated to longevity <laughs> you can imagine they have a, a stronger version to the notion of suffering so i would say it's like a it's a three-step process and we're actually going to end up on cavalry with jesus and the two thieves right it's important symbolically all three are there so first we open up the category of suffering and we we look at its, its etymology we know that suffering in its essence literally just means to undergo and so if i start if i stand here and i walk over there i have suffered the journey from here to there 
It doesn't have any particular negative connotation, other than the fact that in the process of undergoing anything, I'm going to be having experiences. So the category of suffering is the category, just like we talked about the category of prayer. The category of suffering is the category of meeting experience, entering into life and undergoing life and being willing to accept the fact that in the process of undergoing life, there's going to be things that happen to me. I will be changed by that encounter. So that's suffering. Now, in the context of suffering, there's a subset which has to do with, let's call it just pain for the moment. Painful suffering. Um, now, in the category of pain, we have the, the, the homily from the Western tradition, no pain, no gain. But specifically, what we're talking about here is that growth, transformation, is also death. And certain parts of you, you know, when you're exercising, muscles are tearing. And certain parts of you are breaking or being broken up. And that's an inevitable necessity. As you encounter experience, you encounter life, you grow into life, that means some part of you is going to be going away. Some new parts of you are going to have to be shifted and broken to actually move in. So that's, that experience is the experience of pain. So painful suffering. So then we have just the last term, meaningless painful suffering. Okay, so now we've got meaningless painful suffering. So now we're going to go to cavalry. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're up on, on the, it's not actually much of the hill, but we're up on the spot with the three, three crucified people. Jesus, one side, thief one, one side, thief two. Right? So thief one is engaged in painful suffering. He's being crucified. But he has the experience of, oh my gosh, you're God. You are salvation. And, and that moment, like literally the moment of crucifixion, he's able to transform Painless suffering from meaningless painless suffering to meaningful painless suffering. In fact, the most meaningful possible. So mm -hmm. symbolically, he represents the category of how we can be in relationship with painful suffering, but by orienting it towards a maximum direction of growth, recognizing that pain plays a role, we can orient ourselves towards the meaningful directionality. So symbolically, he stays awake during the suffering, in a sense, right? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I was just thinking of my own experience when I was suffering and there have been times, you know, when I had a couple surgeries where I was just out of it and I had no sort of connection to anything. And I thought, God, if I die like this, this would be terrible. <laughs> and um, then other moments where I, I had some feeling of gratitude and love and, you know, meaning. And uh, so so it's like the two thieves are living within us all the time. Oh, yeah. All the time. So the, the example I have that, that landed most powerfully is I have a guy, a friend, who's a, one of the best body workers I've ever encountered. And he was putting me through a particular process, and it was extremely painful. Like he was putting me to the absolute edge of the amount of pain that I could endure because I have you know, bad habits. I, you know, I'm on my phone typing in all kinds of junk. And I was in this, I had this beautiful experience of like, oh, my gosh, this is super painful. Like I am suffering agony. And then I had this realization of, yeah, but I trust him completely. Like, I absolutely trust him, both in terms of competence and goodwill. Like, he's, he's here to help, and he mm -hmm. can. So now what I need to do is I need to orient myself towards surrendering into the suffering, surrendering into the pain, so that the work that needs to be done can actually be done all the way down. Like, if I'm going to suffer pain, I want to have the consequences of that be as productive of growth and health as possible. Yeah, because so the other guy on the cross is, you know, doesn't have a friend. Uh, he's he's just, you know, uh, that that's the most lamentable state to be in. He, he suffers pain meaninglessly. 
He yeah. literally rejects meaning. He rejects Christ. He actually yeah. is present to the possibility. He chooses the path of rejecting and therefore consigns himself to perfectly meaningless pain. So that's the sort of the category of suffering. So now what you have is a much richer tableau, which Christ sits right smack in the center of, right, representing the maximum pain and the maximum meaningfulness simultaneously. And the and the locus or the symbolon, that which brings us together, um, or symbol, symbolon, that which brings us together, yeah. the symbolon that allows us to participate in the orientation towards maximally meaningful suffering. And so how's that as a phrase coming from Christianity towards Buddhism? <laughs> Maximal meaningful suffering, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess... Um... I guess it's the same. I mean, well, you know, I, they're they're different. You know, I, I think all the religions are the same and different. <laughs> Let's you know, whatever conclusion you come to, if it's the ultimate conclusion and the deepest conclusion, you know, um, it can be found in multiple different places. Um, but that's yeah, quite something. Stuff. Yeah, the 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 three guys and, and Jesus up there. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, and then remember, like in, in the Christian's architecture, Jesus is God, right? So you know, you literally have that which is eternal, that which is infinite, that which is perfect. Um, the word is condescending, or coming down to, choosing to come down, to engage in maximally meaningful suffering out of love for us. Like all of these, every single one of these pieces are a build. Right? It's all, all of that is a build. Um so that, you know, out of love for us, so that we can reconcile, we can become the thief on the left. We can, we can transform our, the necessity of our experience, the fact that we are going to be suffering, and the necessity of pain in that experience mm. into the meaningful, or, or at least oriented in that direction, which is, by the way, called theophany, Eastern traditions, as I understand it. Theophany means suffering nobly? The, the, the oh. process of, of becoming more and more like God. The process of becoming more, right, right, right. Oh, got it. Okay. Okay. Hmm. All right, man. I think we may be done. Okay. Yeah. That's, that felt uh, very, uh, very, very uh, uh, rich and a, a lot to digest. So thanks so much uh, for doing that, uh, Jordan. Uh, yeah. Just, I, I feel like I, I need to continually copy that. So remember, you mm -hmm. and anyone else to watch this. Um, you know, I'm doing my best, but I don't really know that much. So if my theology is wrong, I apologize. And if it's heretical, I willfully will submit to being burned at the stake. I do not endeavor to bring anybody off the mark. And I'm doing, uh, and if I'm making mistakes, just please go to somebody else who's deeper or wiser than me to get better guidance. Okay. Thanks so much, uh, Jordan. And thanks for your conscientiousness and, you know, and all your, your thoughts over, over the years. Yeah, you're quite welcome. <laughs> Well, take have care, a beautiful day, my friend.